You're listening to the Art of Parenting podcast. I'm your host, Jeanne-Marie Penel. Welcome and thank you for joining me. I created this podcast along with everything I do at yourparentingmentor.com to support and inspire you to be the best parent you can be. I know for a fact and from experience that parenting was never meant to be done alone. From conception to preschool, my mission is to give you the tools, strategies, and knowledge to embrace and elevate your parenting experience. I'm dedicated to supporting, inspiring, and guiding you to nurture your child's immense potential with as much joy and ease as humanly possible. Make sure to take time to check out all of the resources I have gathered for you in the show notes, as well as on my website, yourparentingmentor.com. And be sure to get on my email list so you do not miss a single episode and other products and events I curate specifically for you. And please do not hesitate to reach out if you have any questions, concerns, or feedback. A warm welcome to you and thanks for tuning in. Hello and welcome back to The Art of Parenting. This is your host, Jeanne-Marie Penel, and today I have Tracy Gillett with me uh, to talk about just mothering, natural parenting, and all these beautiful topics. I have admired her work for a long time, so I am super excited to, to have this conversation with you, Tracy. Oh, thank you so much. It's my absolute pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Yes. Well, so as I always like to get started, um, I would love to have my guests define what the art of parenting means to them. Well, I think that's it's a great question because I love to talk about the science and the art of parenting. And, you know, when we when we talk about the science of parenting, it's all the you know, how, how do our kids' brains develop and, and what do they need from us? And, you know, what are the, what are sort of these universal things as parents that, that we can offer our kids? But I think where the art really comes into it, I think it's, it's the bigger part. It's the, it's the being with our kids. It's how do we be with these individual kids that we've got and really tailor our relationship to them and sort of leave a lot of the stereotypes and the, automatic tapes that we have in our heads of what it's supposed to mean to be a parent and kind of forget all that and just surrender into the relationship. So I think it's, yeah, surrender is a big word when, that I think of when it comes to the art of parenting. It's, it's really allowing ourselves to be with our kids in the way that they need, I think. Yeah, that would be it for me. Beautiful, beautiful. And I love the fact that you say surrender is the word because it is such a, um, how would you say, a day by day and just really accepting who they are, right? Because we, we have no, we have no way of knowing before we give birth who, who this little being is going to be and what they're going to need from us. Uh, it sure is. And it changes, you know, my son is 10 now and and when we talk about the art of parenting, you know, what he needed from me when he was a baby, you know, obviously is, is different to what a 10-year-old needs, but just in the way that he changes, you know, from a 7-year-old to a 10-year-old changes and being willing to, I think as soon as we think we've got it figured out, then they pivot <laughs> and we start to, oh, they're, they're letting me know that I need a new skill here or I need to evolve here or, you know, so it's it's really 
allowing ourselves to uh, lean into that flexibility instead of being rigid in our thinking when it comes to parenting. Definitely. Yeah. And, and I know for me, I always say, you know, our, our children are new children each and every day. So to be open to seeing them as a new child each and every day, so as, as you're, you know, sharing with your son, it's they, their needs change and evolve. Yeah. And I, and I think when we can do that, when we can let go of that, of this idea that, you know, say that, that it doesn't change, that there's so much resistance that comes with that. And there's so much energy that goes into that resistance. And it can all, almost be easier, I think, just to allow yourself to flow with it. Definitely, definitely. Um, and I would love, Tracy, if you would just take a moment to introduce yourself a little bit better and kind of let us know your your background and, and how you came to do the work that you're doing with uh, Raise Good today. Sure. So you'll hear from my accent. I'm originally from Australia. I grew up in Melbourne and um, I married a Kiwi and we've kind of been we're quite nomadic, so we now find ourselves living in Canada. We've also lived in the UK, and I lived in Auckland and New Zealand for a while as well. And um, when we became parents, like I guess Raise Good kind of started before we became parents. I had a lot of trouble falling pregnant, or, or we did as a couple. And so I sort of went down this fertility journey um, for about three years um, until we finally fell pregnant, which, which happened naturally, which was amazing. But um, I'd always, I'd, I'd felt like I'd learned so much on that journey and I really wanted to share it with others who were on, on that path because it is such a hard thing for women to go through. And then I became pregnant and, and sort of my focus shifted pretty quickly. And I, I started down this path of, of thinking, well, how am I going to parent this baby? And I, I grew up loving animals. Like that was, that was a real passion for me. And I was sort of a bit of an activist and um, very passionate about animal welfare. I was a veterinarian before, you know, in a, in a past life. That was, that was sort of my professional background. And so I love um, sort of diving into science and, and simplifying it and making it accessible to, um, you know, to parents um, or to people who, who sort of aren't so science-minded. And so when I was pregnant, I remember going to a midwife appointment and my midwife, we were talking about where the baby would sleep, and I, I share this on the blog, and she said to me, you know, the baby's not going to sleep in the crib. He'll be sleeping in your bed. And I said, you're crazy. He's not sleeping in my bed. What are you talking about? I just bought this expensive crib. I've shipped it in from the States. We've put it together. It's got organic, you know, bedding on it, all that non-toxic stuff. That's where he'll be sleeping. And um, she just said, no, I can tell. He's going to be in your bed. And so my curiosity was immediately um, sort of sparked in that direction. And and I just started reading about things like co-sleeping and breastfeeding full term and, you know, obviously looking at, you know, birth and, and then it just sort of, it, it went from there. And as a new parent, I found, you know, I was incredibly tired, obviously, like that's, that's something that we can't escape no matter how we parent a newborn and a baby and a toddler. It's, it's, you know, incredibly demanding of our energy, but I just found that I found this flow with it. And I found so much um, joy and connection in sort of the practices that we were choosing to follow. And so I wanted to share it with others. So I started writing and I started writing blog posts. And I never fancied myself as a writer before. I'd not paid much attention in English class. And, and 
and suddenly I thought, you know, maybe a few people will read it, but it started to get a wider readership. And so I turned it into Raised Good and it became this creative outlet for me as a mother. Yeah, sort of another form of activism that I kind of, you know, felt like since I was a teenager. So I am passionate about psychology. I love diving into understanding why we do the things that we do and um, and sort of, yeah, saw, saw babies and children as this minority that I hadn't recognised before. I started to see that we treated babies and children in a way that we wouldn't get away with treating other adults in our lives. So true. Yeah. So that, that's how it started. And I just um, have taken it from there. It's a passion project that's, yeah, it's turned into, turned into what I do. So I'm extremely grateful for it. Yeah. And I know you have quite a, quite a big reach all over the world. So, so it's beautiful that this, like you say, activism work turned into, you know, a, a really do good and, and, and be of support to, to so many parents. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, and and I love how you on on your website you say to to reclaim the wonder of motherhood and the joy of childhood. And to me, that is that is a lost art. And and really to reclaim the the natural aspect. And when you say that the flow of it, I think that is so important. And I'd love for you to to maybe touch on why you think we have gone so far away from just being mothers who follow our instincts, who, who, who follow the natural flow of our children? Yeah, I think it, that's such a great question. And I think what you say there, you know, this, this reclaiming of motherhood, and I, because this is nothing new, it's not coming up with a new way of doing things. It's, it's sort of following what our biology dictates we would do you know if we were just dropped on a desert island and how would we mother without parenting experts telling us or baby stores telling us to buy things or you know doctors telling us to do it a certain way just how are humans designed to parent and when we can be in line with that I think we get so much joy from naturally flowing from that um, rather than you know going against um, sort of what what our natural way of being is so I think how we've come so far away from it, I think there's so many reasons, but two that I'd point out is, you know, it's become sort of cliche and, and ironic to talk about, but this loss of the village, uh, this loss of sort of the matriarchs and this sort of maternal wisdom that would just naturally get passed down from, you know, within families. And, you know, when I became a mother, I... I breastfed full term with my son, but I, looking back, I can't actually remember before becoming a mum, seeing, even really seeing anybody. I, I didn't witness breastfeeding myself um, very many times. I must be able to count it on one hand. So we've lost that kind of experience that is just passed down. Um, and so now we're kind of needing to read books and remind ourselves and find a village online and like, get back to those, get back to those kind of things. So I think loss of the village is a big one. And then the other one I think is, you know, we got off track with sort of this wave of behaviorism, um, you know, 150 years ago, whenever it started of thinking that, you know, children, it was our right to sort of mold children into how we wanted them to be. And we started to communicate to children, whether consciously or not, that 
we love them more for what they do rather than who they are, that they need to get our approval, um, that, you know, if we if we just leave a baby, you know, to, to cry to sleep, then it will learn how to sleep. Um, thinking that the outcome is somehow like related to the process. It's like it, it's, uh, yeah, this whole behaviorism view sort of really took over the world and, and doctors and, you know, predominantly male doctors and, and other people in positions of authority started to tell mothers how to do things, started to tell mothers that they, you know, mustn't breastfeed through the night by a certain age or that they must only breastfeed every four hours, follow the clock instead of follow their instincts, don't listen to their child, um, you know, put them in a timeout, you know, modern days, modern day um, sort of advice. But, yeah, there's sort of uh, outsourcing of our motherhood and I, and I think that's one of the biggest things that I try to, communicate you know particularly to mums um is is to reclaim that nobody knows your child like you do you're the decision maker you know get that confidence get it back so that you lead your family not somebody else you can go to other people for advice and but they're service providers (laughs) you take advice and then you figure out your decision if they'd be the two biggest things i'd point out would sort of be behaviorism and, and loss of the village yeah, and, and that's fascinating. I know for me, like when uh, when I'm meeting with new parents, I often say, like, you know, the the advice I think it's good to 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 seek out maybe from from your elders, but from maybe families that you admire. Like, if you if you have some families that are maybe a few years ahead of you and that you really. Uh, like the way that they are parenting, then maybe those are the people you should be asking, but not, you know, like these, these sometimes, you know, experts that maybe uh, didn't really raise their children, or like you say, you know, we're, we're in a very kind of strict uh, paradigm. So, so yeah, see, seek out your village for sure. Very important. Yeah, and I know, yeah. and I know you create one on race good as well, right? You have a sort of membership where where it it's a digital it's a digital virtual village, but uh, a very strong one. Yes, yeah, it was it was something that I wanted to do for a long time, and we started that earlier this year, and it's called called Gather. And yeah, if I could do it in person, I would, but it's uh, but it's incredible seeing. I think that's one of the things too, like, you know, people in the membership, they're from all over the world. And and I think one of the things that's helped me in my mothering is sort of looking cross-culturally as well. You know, we can get so caught up in, in how we do it in, in Western society and, and looking to how other cultures do it. I think that can be really emboldening as well, like to see that, you know, so many parents around the world are, are co-sleeping every night um, just because the you know, American Academy of Pediatrics might not um, endorse it, you know, look at all the other parents around the world that are. So, and looking back through history and stuff like that. So I think, yeah, this, we can, we've, we've lost the village, but we can recreate it in other ways and, um, and sort of bring it back. So yeah, I'm passionate about it. And it's interesting what you say about culture too, because so so I, I don't know if you know, but my my background is more Montessori kind of principles and such. And one of the things about sleep is that we don't use a crib, right? Where where we don't put a child in a container that they can't put themselves in or get themselves out uh, independently. So we use 
uh, a floor bed. Uh, and oftentimes, you know, mom or dad are sleeping next to them. And I realize, you know, how here I'm in the US and here it's when I talk about the floor bed, you know, people think like, what a crazy idea. But then when you look around the world, like that's what's happening naturally everywhere anyways, like the, the crib is a, you know, 19th century invention for consumerism and and there's no real developmental purpose for for the newborn so yeah i love montessori and we had a floor bed for a while and uh, you know because co-sleeping for us has not been a linear path like because you don't know well in terms of the co-sleeping and bed sharing it has been but because we've lost that village you know i remember when when my son was a baby i was like oh i wonder when he'll move out of my bed like will it be when he's two or three or what will it be and so we went through all these iterations um you know we had the crib um that i bought when i was pregnant and we got rid of that and then we replaced it with a floor, a floor bed and so he would you know nap on that and sometimes i you know yeah and, and i just i love floor beds and and that's something that you know even for co-sleeping families uh that's the safest that's one of the safest ways to sleep is um you know just put the mattress on the floor um you know and get some get some ventilation under it but yeah it's it's really fascinating when we look to to the rest of the world and i i love the montes we did so many montessori things and and um i love that it I think one of the things, you know, particularly with toddlers, like we, we overestimate their emotional abilities and underestimate their physical abilities. And that's where I find that Montessori was just amazing. You know, my son was up there making the juice when he's 18 months and had the little knife and we had the weaning table and floor bed and all that stuff. So I just love the approach of Montessori. Oh, wonderful. Yeah, they, they are so, so much more capable than we give them credit for. So so beautiful. And, and, and if I may, like, how, how were you raised differently than how you chose to raise your son? Oh, I think that's, um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm the oldest of four kids. Um, my mum was six and, um, yeah, I mean, my parents were, well, are, um, but, you know, growing up, I mean, they're amazing, like incredibly loving and, uh, I think probably was sort of raised similarly in in many ways. Um, you know, my my dad. I never remember him really even yelling or raising his voice. Like it was, you know, relatively peaceful house and was always accepted. But there's there's always this undercurrent of kind of, um, you know, I'm sure that there was the a, a lot more praise than than what I give my son. And that was all through love, you know, like my mom wanting to recognize the amazing things that I'd done, you know, good girl, good job. And all those, all those sorts of things. And, um, you know, my son, uh, last weekend, he was supposed to have a belated birthday party and, and he was sick. And so we had to postpone it. And I was just anticipating the disappointment of it. Disappointment was an emotion that it still is an emotion that I find really hard. And I think that was, you know, going back to childhood, you know, my mom would try to fix things for me all the time and, and, you know, distract me from that. And again, that's all out of love. And that's exactly what I would do as a mother if I hadn't real, if I hadn't sort of understood where some of these things can go. So, you know, letting my son really just feel that disappointment and not distract him from it and 
have that emotion and realize that it's not my job to make my son happy all the time and it's not his job to be happy all the time. I think that was one thing sort of growing up and even now is sort of wanting to thinking that I can make my parents happy. And that's an incredible burden that goes on a child if they're trying to make their parents happy all the time. So I really try to free my son of of a lot of that. And and it's hard. I mess it up every day. I catch myself, you know, in the tapes that it's just subconscious. Like you're raised in it. It's it's in the culture. So um really trying to break some of those cycles and I won't get it all right, but hopefully I'll get it a little bit better and then and maybe he'll have a little less baggage in his emotional backpack when he's older. But um yeah, but no, I mean my parents, my dad especially is incredibly playful and um very involved parents. So yeah, I, I learned many amazing lessons from my parents that I bring into my parenting for sure. Beautiful. Beautiful. And and I asked just because sometimes, you know, I think that we as parents, there are certain things like we don't want to reproduce or where we're kind of reacting against something that um, we we didn't we didn't necessarily appreciate. But it sounds like you had a very lovely childhood and and appreciated, but you're you're also kind of shifting away and and doing things a little differently. And I'd love if you could maybe talk maybe about the science behind because right away you said about praise like not over praising and then also letting our children sit with their disappointment like we, we can't be fixing everything what what's the the like the the psychological kind of science behind that and and why do you feel so strongly about it yeah well I think they um you know when we think about praising kids it sort of comes naturally you know particularly as our babies grow and you know they start crawling and then they're toddlers and they start drawing and you just want to say like good job like you know amazing and but once we start doing that then we can start getting our kids to start looking for external validation for what they're doing so I had a friend recently say to me her um, parents-in-law were visiting and her son I think he's about three was down on the floor doing a puzzle and he was just enjoying the puzzle just having a great time doing the puzzle getting satisfaction out of doing it himself but then his grandmother started saying good job every time he would put a puzzle piece in and so then every time he would put a puzzle piece in he would look up at her waiting waiting for the validation you know and the more that we do that the more that kids start to think again, that they're valued for what they do, not who they are, but they start to look for that external validation instead of the internal motivation to just do it for themselves. And so what we can do, like it's not to say that when that we're not proud of our kids, that we're not going to, you know, talk about how much we love what they're doing. But one of the things with praise is that it can really help to to praise the process rather than the outcome so it can be saying wow I can see you're concentrating so hard on that puzzle you've been working so long on that or you know instead of like good job for finishing your carrots you know off your plate it might be like oh my gosh there were like seven pieces of carrots on there and now there are none where have they gone so it's noticing it but it's it's our kids feeling good from the inside out rather than the outside in. 
And I think, you know, as grown-ups, many of us, probably people that are listening, can recognize this in ourselves. We want our bosses to tell us that we've done a good job. We want our partners to recognize that we unloaded the dishwasher. And and that's that's all well and good, you know, to to sort of acknowledge other people's effort and stuff, but not so much that we are constantly at the whim of others who can easily take that away and then we can lose that feeling of self-worth. So I think a lot of this is about building self-worth and self-esteem from the inside. And so really, yeah, praising the process instead of the outcome, I think would be the main message. Beautiful. Thank you for that. I mean, I, I, I know that, you know, for myself, but I, I, I love your, your words of, of explaining that, of really working on their inner self-worth and those intrinsic values that, you know, only, only they can carry on through life. And, and also I will say when we, you know, like the example of the puzzle saying good job or, or, you know, praising them as they're doing it, it totally messes up their concentration. Like we need to leave our children alone so that they can focus, they can stay in their flow. I mean, imagine when you're writing a piece that somebody is over your shoulder saying, oh, good job. Like, that's a great paragraph. Like, leave me alone. (laughs) I think so often as parents, we we could talk a whole lot less, couldn't we? We could say a whole lot less, (laughs) make our lives easier. And and because, yeah, I know, you know, with Montessori, sort of really promoting that, you know, that sort of healthy independence, not premature independence, like, like behaviorism and all that, that, sort of healthy, uh, but they, they need to be able to, yeah, explore their own ideas themselves at their own pace and and give them the time and space to do that. So I love that. Yeah, just saying. Yeah, yeah. And just and just respecting their 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 flow and their concentration. I mean, that's when, you know, that's when neurons are, are making connections. And that's when they're, they're, they're understanding their own process. And if we're constantly, you know, disrupting that they're not able to, to stay focused and in their flow. And then we wonder why our children are so distracted, right? So we, we need to be careful of that as well. Yeah, yeah, that's very true. It's like, why can't they play independently? We need to stop interrupting them. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. Um, I know that that on your on your uh, blog, you talk a lot about sleep and kind of some myths that we have around uh, infant sleep or, or early childhood sleep. Are there like two or three that you would want to share with our listeners? Because I know sleep always seems to be kind of a big hot topic in uh, parenting, especially uh, our little ones. Anything that, that you know, you would want to share with our listeners about sleep? Yeah, for sure. And I think, um, you know, this sleep wasn't something that I set out to be passionate about. <laughs> like it's, and, and it's, it's not even really about the sleep. Um, for me, it's, uh, why I'm still talking about it, you know, cause it's not something, you know, that I'm, that I'm dealing with head on anymore with my son is older now, but I think, and I, it's made into this hot topic that it really doesn't need to be. And I know that whenever I post about it, it would be controversial because, you know, sleep training has become so ingrained in our society. And what I feel is that if parents can accept the realities of infant sleep and work with their babies and parent through the night and 
sort of really develop that deep connection and and surrender to how things are, then I think sleep in those early years can sort of represent this fork in the road where if if they can lean into connection and accept out how it is, then they're much more likely to accept that their toddler is going to push boundaries and that, you know, childhood is messy and and they've already lent into that connection. Whereas I think if we go down the sleep training route and just say, no, we don't accept this, like babies need to sleep through the night because grown-ups need sleep and there's no other way around it, then we've already started to disconnect ourselves from our babies. And then it's much easier to say, well, the toddler needs to go in a timeout. This behavior is unacceptable. Childhood needs to be linear. And um, so I feel like it's kind of this fork in the road. So that's that's one of the reasons why I talk about it. And so, so, excuse me, when you say fork in the road, it's kind of a kind of a decision factor almost. I mean, to me, I, I'm, I'm hearing it like a decision factor of how you're going to parent. Like if you're accepting that sleep is going to be a little messy in those first few months and maybe those first few years, it's, it's, it's kind of what you were saying at the beginning is just surrendering to parenting is, you know, every day is a new phase. Is, is that what I'm, am I hearing that correctly? Yeah, definitely. And I mean, I think so many people come to, come to sort of, you know, whether we call it positive parenting or natural parenting, conscious parenting, you know, at different ages and stages, you know, you might sort of go down an, an authoritarian path. And then suddenly when your child's five, realize that it's not working and, and, deviate from there and there's no and there should be no regret in that it's just like well I've learned something new today and I'm going to change but I think for those parents who sort of lean into it right from the start the flow really is so much easier so yeah that's that's sort of and when we say surrender like we're not saying giving up like right right the white flag and just let the kids do whatever um it's more about um surrendering to reality I think in parenting, we're told so many, you know, and you asked about myths, but we're told so many things that just aren't so, that just aren't true. And when we try to bend reality, uh, you know, that's an impossible task and it leads to so much frustration and resentment from parents when they're told it's supposed to be a certain way, when they're told that babies are supposed to sleep from seven till seven, and that's just not true, then there's two there's two possibilities there either there's something wrong with my baby something wrong with me or what I was told was wrong and and we need to you know start busting these myths so that parents don't think that there's something wrong with their baby or something wrong with how they parent it's that what we were told wasn't true so I think some of the biggest myths uh the first one would be that yeah the babies are supposed to sleep through the night by some early age you know by 12 weeks or whatever whatever age we want to choose you know babies sleep very differently to adults um they have you know their sleep cycles are half the length of ours um they have very small stomachs and they need to fill those often there's so much brain development going on they don't sleep as deeply as we do and we don't want them to we don't want to encourage them to sleep deeply until their brain development catches up it's important that they wake up um you know for safe safe infant sleep so this idea that babies should sleep longer than longer or more deeply um than how they actually do i think that's probably the biggest one so normalizing night waking and then supporting parents so that they're not zombies, you know, with no sleep 
And I think when we promote this idea of the crib down the end of the hall, and but we're also telling mothers that they need to breastfeed because, you know, that's what we're encouraging. I don't know how a mother could get up every two hours, walk down the hall, turn the lights on and breastfeed their baby and then go back to sleep and get any sleep at all. So that's where we need to, you know, be giving parents options like co-sleeping and, and providing them information and resources on how to do that safely because a sort of standard adult bed isn't necessarily a safe space for an infant. So we need to be educating parents Um I think another big myth is around, you know, breastfeeding and sleep go so closely together. So mothers are often told that breastfeeding to sleep is a bad sleep habit, which just isn't so. Uh, there's so many things about breast milk and breastfeeding that just naturally lead to sleep. I Then this is where I love diving into the science part of it. You know, nighttime, so babies can't produce melatonin and they don't have mature circadian rhythms when they're born. And they don't even start developing circadian rhythms and even start producing melatonin until they're around four months. And that can take up to a year of age to mature. So when we need to sleep at nighttime, you know, the sun goes down and it gets dark and our melatonin production goes up and we feel sleepy. Babies don't really have that, but nighttime breast milk has is chock full of melatonin. Oh, wow. I did not know that. That's fascinating. Fascinating. Like mother nature doesn't make mistakes, right? So babies are designed to fall asleep at the breast. So, and if you don't want to breastfeed, that's, that's fine. Or if you can't breastfeed, that's fine. But for mothers who are breastfeeding to sleep and then sitting, you know, Googling in the dark, is this a bad sleep habit and being told, yes, they should put their baby down drowsy, but awake. It's, they're just setting themselves up for more and more, you know, difficulty when it's not needed. So, and there's other things about, you know, breast milk as well that help babies sleep. But I think that's one of the most powerful ones to know. Um, so for any mothers who pump, you know, it's important that if you're pumping, label your daytime breast milk daytime and the nighttime breast milk for nighttime and, you know, give the nighttime breast milk when you want the baby to sleep at night. So, so they're, they're two of the biggest myths that I, that I love to debunk because I think they're very powerful and they're, they're probably the two biggest ones that um, sort of fuel this sleep training um, culture. And, and when parents start to know some of that stuff, I think it can really start to get the wheels turning. And um, yeah, just our ability to critically think about these things um, and make our own decisions. Yes, yes. And uh, earlier, you used the term uh, full term breastfeeding. What what were you referring to there? Yeah, well, just um, breastfeeding until until my son naturally weaned. So yeah, so I think like, I think most um, medical associations, I think the World Health Organization is, you know, recommends two years as a as a minimum for breastfeeding, um, if you know, if the mother can do it, and, and if the mother wants to. But yeah, I've got a blog post on my site that sort of dives into like what would, you know, if we think back to hunter-gatherer times or, you know, caveman times, like how long would a woman have breastfed? How long would a baby have breastfed? Um, and and it's amazing, like diving into the research on that. And yeah, I mean, the natural... So, so is it longer, longer or shorter than what's being... Oh, longer. Yeah. Longer. The natural okay. weaning age can be anywhere between four and seven years of age. Oh, my goodness. Okay. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's it's amazing. Like once you start to dive into it, and yeah, so I've, I can I can share that blog post with you because it sort of goes into into the research on that. Okay, because it's interesting in my uh, training, and this is you know the, the the Montessori kind of training of the birth to three. There's a much younger, I guess. That they that the baby is going to start weaning themselves, where they're they're not going to be interested in the breast anymore once they're kind of introduced to solid, you know, maybe around nine months to a year, and that we tend to think that oh, you know, they're going on a on a strike or breastfeeding, and and we still kind of push it on them, but that some children just aren't interested in it anymore. And are are more interested in in self feeding than the breast, or or maybe they will, you know, still have want to breastfeed just for that uh, connection or nurturing, you know, maybe at nighttime or things like that. But that it's not necessarily. I guess I guess for me there there seems to be this, you know, the fact that we say you know two years minimum also puts a lot of pressure on some on some women who who maybe don't want to do that for that long or so that there's kind of this, you know, breastfeeding police that doesn't necessarily need to be there. So again, it's about, you know, surrendering to what our needs are as, as a mother and to our child's reaction to it. Yeah, definitely. I think it's on both sides, you know, we, you know, and there's individual temperaments of different children, you know, for, for how long feels good for them. And I think, you know, with this loss of the village, you know, and equally for the mother. And that's, you know, why I always say like, it's, it's, um, it's not about saying parent a certain way. It's about saying like, here are all the different choices that you have and, um, you know, choose what feels right for you and your baby. And and it'd be different from one baby to the next. And, you know, but I think, we we definitely still have a long way to go when it comes to breastfeeding. You know, we encourage we encourage breastfeeding, but after a certain age, we don't really like to see mothers breastfeeding in public. We start to make comments, and and so I think it's in both directions. I think it's for mothers who you know uh, don't want to breastfeed or can't breastfeed, you know, for health reasons, or there could be any number of reasons why a mother can't breastfeed. Then that mother should be supported and and helped as much as possible to, you know, there's breastfeeding can lead to so much, uh, you know, connection and and bonding between mother and child, but you can get that in other ways without necessarily breastfeeding. So I think it's about, um, yeah, supporting mothers and wherever they fall on that spectrum and, and just normalizing personal choice. I think that's the biggest thing that we need to normalize. Right, right. And and I know you use you, you use the word choice and, and I love that because it's also you know, for me I, I'm I'm also a birth doula and I and I, I just remind birthing parents that they have a choice, that there is not a just a one way to to give birth right that that depending on where you live in uh, in the world there's the, the the culture is going to tell you you know you have to go to the hospital or you have to do this or do that and and no you get to choose like it's your body you're very healthy you're not sick and you get to choose yeah and i think i think when when choices are made intentionally, it's a very different energy that comes to it, isn't it? Like, 
like with birth, you, you know, you could have, have on one end um, sort of a completely natural, you know, free birth or home birth. Um, and then on the other end, you might have, have a mother who feels like she doesn't have any choices and is perhaps like pushed into, pushed into a hospital birth. But you might have a mother who's like, no, I just feel much more comfortable in the hospital. Like that's where I want to be. And if that's her intentional choice, then that's amazing. And if it's the intentional choice to home birth, then that's amazing. And I think it's, it's really um, feeling empowered to be able to make our own choices and then to have those around us supporting us with that. Like, you know, the, the slogans of like fed it, breast is best or fed is best. I don't subscribe to either of those. I'm like, no, informed is best, like informed is best mate. And then make and supported as best to be able to make our own individual choices and, and I think one of the things that we've really lost in our culture, particularly over the last few years, is just this ability to be able to disagree and to have critical thinking and and to come together on, you know, on our values, not necessarily exactly our choices, you know, like um, I might be breastfeeding, someone else might be bottle feeding, I might be bed sharing, someone else might be, you know, sleeping separately. And we should be able to be best of friends. Like it, it shouldn't, these different differences in our choices shouldn't mean that we can't um you know be in the same village and support one another so i think that's one of the things that we need to really foster as mothers is that we don't need to be all same same all the time yes thank you for that very very important because we 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 bring our own baggage to parenting and we get to parent how how we choose to so thank you for that Thank you. And, and as we wrap up, I, I always like to kind of circle back to your personal experience as a parent. And if I may, like you, you said your son was 10. So if you were to maybe go back 11 years ago, when you were expecting your son, um, what wise words would you tell yourself knowing all that you know today? I think I would just go back and say that you don't need to know how to do it all and that you'll find your way and that there'll be messy days and that it doesn't matter. Not that I've really worried about how things look, but um, yeah, you can't, a bad day doesn't mean bad parenting or anything. It's just, yeah, to offer myself more compassion, um, to, to look after myself more as well. And that's probably the same advice that I think my future self in another 10 years would probably tell tell me today so I should probably listen to it just leaning in and I it's just again it's going to sound cliche and like yeah we've all heard it but and you would say this too it just goes by so fast it's not about like needing to enjoy every moment and that every moment is magic because it's not and it's okay to say that it's okay to say this is really hard and today sucks but at the same time, try to lean into it as much as you can because it does go by so fast and just have more fun with it. Forget about the rules. You know, if you've got a, if you've got a bedtime that's eight o'clock um, and you want to stick to that most of the time, go for it. But sometimes chuck that out the window and go and watch the sunset together and get donuts and put the headlamps on and go for a hike and just, you know, have fun with your kids and try to sort of channel that childlike energy within yourself that yeah you just don't have to have it all right I think that would be 
That's beautiful. Beautiful. Um, and, and I know you've just shared a lot answering that last question, but any, any parting words that you would like to leave our listeners with today? Just that, um, you know, for all the, all the mums and dads who are sitting at home feeling like they're getting nothing done, you know, we live in this really productivity focused society and we can often feel like we're not getting much done in the parenting of our little ones, especially um, because it is so demanding emotionally, mentally, and uh, physically, but just to realize that you're doing the most monumentally worthwhile work of your life, you know, helping to raise our kids from from infancy, you know, through to adulthood, there's so much brain development and emotional maturity and all of this stuff that needs to happen. And it's slow and it's messy. So just to pat yourself on the back and, um, and to have a bit more compassion for yourself as well. I think that would be it. Beautiful. Thank you, Tracy. This has been a delightful conversation. Thank you for making the time to be with us today. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Art of Parenting podcast. And if you did, please share it with your loved ones and make sure to leave a review so it can get heard by many more. And remember, if you've got a question, let me know. I'm here for you. Till next time.